Well, if you uh, haven't been with us for a while, we're in the book of Philippians, and we're in uh, the number six installment in our study of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter one. We're going to kind of uh, almost finish the chapter this morning. Not quite. Next week, we'll finish the chapter. I want to say this. I want to make this statement to you. The strength of one's commitment is determined by the center of one's confidence. Think about that. Think that through. Would you say that's a a true statement? The strength of one's commitment is determined by the center of one's confidence. Think it through for a moment. Your commitment to paint the peak of your 75-foot home, for example, will only be as strong as your confidence in the ladder or staging that you use right? If it's flimsy, you're not going to be that committed to it. read an interesting story one time that kind of highlights this truth. Tim Bowden, in his book, One Crowded Hour, was about a cameraman, Neil Davis, told about an incident that happened in Borneo during the confrontation between Malaysia and Indonesia in 1964. A group of Gurkhas from Nepal were asked if they would be willing to jump from a transport plane into combat against the Indonesians if the need arose. The Gurkhas had the right to turn down the request because they had never been trained as paratroopers before. Bowden quotes Davis's account of the story. He says, now the Gurkhas usually agreed to anything, but on this occasion they provisionally rejected the plan. But the next day, one of their NCOs uh, sought out a British officer who made the request and said that they had discussed the matter further and they would be prepared to jump only under certain conditions. What are they, asked the British officer. The Gurkhas told him that they would jump if the land was marshy or reasonably soft with no rocky outcrops because they were inexperienced in falling. So the British officer considered this, and he said that the dropping area would almost certainly be over the jungle, and there would not be rocky outcrops, so that seemed all right to them. Was there anything else that they required? Yes, said the Gurkhas. They wanted the plane to fly as slowly as possible and no more than 100 feet off the ground. The British officer pointed out to the plane that planes always did fly as slowly as possible when dropping troops, but to jump from 100 feet was absolutely impossible because the parachutes wouldn't have time to open in time from that height. The Gurkhas said, oh, that's all right then. We'll jump with parachutes anywhere you want us to. You didn't mention parachutes before. It's a true story. The strength of one's commitment is determined by the center of one's confidence. And when we insert that principle into the arena of promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, that truth doesn't change. As we've seen, it was a constant in the Apostle Paul's life, and it should be in ours as well. Mark the principle and indelibly etch it in your mind and make the personal application to your own life. The strength of our commitment in promoting the gospel is determined by the center of our confidence in the person of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 26. Let me read those verses for you again. Paul says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus 
through my coming to you again. Last week, we began to look at why Paul had so much joy and such a strong commitment in the midst of his circumstances. And I suggested to you that it was because Paul had placed his confidence in Christ. And when a person places his confidence in Christ, it frees him and unlocks the leg irons that drag him down and weaken his commitment. I also suggested that confidence in Christ would manifest itself in a variety of ways. And the first way that we found last week in verses 19 to 20 was that confidence in Christ usually exhibits itself through a settled conviction, a settled conviction. Like a movable staging 75 feet in the air or a parachute high over the jungles of Indonesia, confidence in Christ gives us peace of mind, a settled conviction, the complete lack of anxiety as we do the work that he's called us to do. Last time, we discovered through verses 19 and 20 that there are five things that we can count on, at least that Paul counted on, when we have confidence in Christ. We can be confident in the promises of Scripture to equip us, the prayers of the saints to encourage us, the provision of the Spirit to empower us, the prospect of our future salvation to inspire us, and the purpose of our suffering which is to enrich us and to exalt Christ. We can be confident in those things. In verses 19 and 20, it says all of those things. Without purpose, there can be no commitment. Our purpose is that Christ will be magnified and exalted in us. Amen? Our commitment is that it will happen whether by life or by our death. Confidence in Christ is exhibited through a settled conviction. Secondly, we saw in verses 21 and 22 that confidence in Christ applies itself through a single-minded commitment. And that's in verse 21 here. We read these words of, of Paul, which are timeless words. Believe me, they're more than just words that go on a plaque that you post on your wall or in your office. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we truly place our confidence in Christ, he will become everything to us. Is Christ everything to you? Can you say today with Paul that to live means that Christ will be the center of my life, my speech, my thoughts, and my actions? Alexander McLaren, a great preacher of years gone by, put it this way, put it bluntly. He said, life is to be as Christ for Christ, by, in, and from Christ. Can we also be confident enough in Christ to say that to die will also be to our profit? Because we'll see him face to face? Because that's what Paul said. How many of us are ready for that? As believers, our faces, whether you know it or not, have been displayed on the front of God's wanted poster. Our names are engraved on his most wanted list of commitment. We are wanted by God, dead or alive. We are. We're wanted by God, dead or alive, to glorify him through single-minded commitment. What does that entail? Number one, single-minded commitment means physical labor. Verse 22, look at that. But if I am to live on in the flesh... This will mean fruitful labor for me, okay? First, let's look at the physical part of that. In the flesh, it says, refers to the fact that Paul is to remain physically alive. That will mean for him labor. How many of you have ever considered sharing your faith to entail actual physical labor? The spiritual battle is also physically taxing, isn't it? Paul's labor was to proclaim Christ to every man and to present every man complete in Christ. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, it says this, Paul says, So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect, mature in their relationship to Christ. 
That's why, and this is where it's key here, Paul says, that's why I work and I struggle so hard depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Did you see those words in Colossians? Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1. They all smack of physical labor. I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Highlight the words Paul uses here in verse 29 and and Colossians also, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. All those words describe the character of physical labor that Paul's talking about here. The word labor means to labor to the point of weariness. The word striving it comes from a Greek word which we get our English word agonizing over, referring to Paul's intense effort. It's an athletic term denoting tireless exertion, a never-say-die attitude. And that's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 1, the word that's translated struggle in the New American Standard Bible. It's that word agony, struggle, agonizing over something. And then later on in that verse, according to the power that works in me, uh, in verse 29, that word is the word we get our English word energy from, meaning it's energetic, effective work. It could literally be translated according to the energy of him who is energizing me with his power. That's what Paul's saying. So you get the picture? It's physical Labor, he's talking about. Paul was an energizer, all purpose, ever ready. Are we? For Paul, physical life meant tirelessly fighting for the faith. He knew it at the beginning of his ministry. In Acts chapter 20, in verse 24, this is what Paul says. He says, I don't care about my own life. The most important thing is that I complete my mission, the work that the Lord had given me to tell people about the good news about God's grace. That was the, at the start of his ministry. At the end of his ministry, Paul also knew it. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verses 6 and 7, Paul says, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And all throughout the ministry in between, Paul knew it from beginning to end and everything in between. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. You, you get the picture? Paul says this is physical labor in, involved in this. That's pretty convicting to me. Is it to you? Sometimes I think the greatest danger many church attenders face today is the danger of getting a splinter in their pants if they shift positions in the pew. Of course, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Paul's life in Christ was one of spiritual and physical labor. Is ours? And I have to ask myself that question. Am I laboring to the point of exhaustion? Not that we have to completely burn out. But Paul's fellow worker here, Epaphroditus, 
who he mentions later on in the book, came close to death for the work of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 30, it says that. There are still some of those people around today. And I think of Pastor Saeed Abedini, who's in prison in the Middle East. How about uh, Miriam Abraham, just, just released. She was sentenced to death, being a pregnant woman in prison. How about all the people that are victims of ISIS right now? You see, the majority of people here, I think, only look like they're close to death. To look at some Christians, you would wonder whether or not they were really alive or just propped up in the chair with a stick. Sometimes I think God would like to post on church bulletin boards a notice that was found in one Detroit business office. This is how it read, posted. The management regrets that it has come to our attention that workers dying on the job are failing to fall down. This practice must stop as it becomes impossible to distinguish between death and the natural movement of the staff. Any employee found dead in an upright position will be dropped from the payroll. I used to work in an office like that. I think for the most part, we American Christians are simply, watch it now, spiritually safe and bored. Bored. And that is an awful indictment. The spirit-convicting truth is that Jesus did not die on the cross to keep us safe. He died on the cross to make us dangerous. Let's face it, many Christians, if not the majority of them, are bored with their faith. I know it's a hard truth to hear, but I welcome you to convince me otherwise. As someone recently noted, we know our sins are forgiven and forgotten. We know we will spend eternity with God when we cross the boundary of the space-time continuum. And we are trying our best to live our lives within the guardrails of God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. But still, we have this gnawing feeling that something's missing. Something's missing. You dealing with that feeling? What's missing? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard believed that boredom was the root of all evil. I think I'd agree to that. In fact, as one pastor recently put it, boredom isn't just boring, boredom is wrong. You cannot simultaneously live by faith and be bored. Faith and boredom are antithetical. If we're bored in our faith, maybe we need to evaluate the strength of our connection to Jesus Christ. John chapter 15, look at what it says there. What did Luke say in John chapter 15 and verse 2? He says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Verse 4. Here's the answer Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Verse 8, my father, Jesus says, is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. It would be okay if it didn't add that little thing on the end, right? My Father's glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Those are hard words, but they're biblical words. Jesus said that a strong connection to him will result in something. It will result in anything but boredom. And it will result in us bearing good fruit for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what characterized P 
Paul's single-minded commitment to Christ, whether he was in prison or he was out of prison. It meant not only physical labor, but single-minded commitment also means fruitful labor. Fruitful labor, verse 22. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. John 15 again, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit will last. It'll remain. What kind of fruit is he talking about? You might be asking yourself the question, well, what's fruit anyway? Well, the Bible lists a few things. What classifies as good fruit? Let me just give it to you. It's not going to be on the screen, so you've got to take notes here if you're interested. Number one, converts to Christ are considered spiritual, spiritually good fruit. You can find that in Romans chapter 1, verse 13. Wisdom and righteousness in your life constitutes good fruit. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. This could be your devotions for the week, okay? There's actually five of them, one for each day. Weekday, weekday. Praiseworthy and a thankful attitude. A thousand gifts, right? What are you thankful for? Praiseworthy and thankful attitude. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says that's good fruit. Good works are considered good fruit in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. And a godly character are considered good fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. Anything that is of eternal value is considered fruit for God. You can think of it that way. So what are we doing? Are we engaged in things that have eternal value or will just fade out and burn away when we die? Because that is not considered good fruit necessarily. Have you stored up any eternal fruit in your life? Because that, I think, was really what Paul was getting at here. It's the result of a single-minded commitment. And remember, the strength of that commitment is going to be determined by the center of your confidence. Where is your confidence centered? It must be in Christ. It must be in Christ. But be prepared. I'm warning you now. Be prepared because when we place our confidence in Christ, we will encounter difficult spiritual choices. Difficult spiritual choices. 22, verse 22 of Philippians 1, toward the end of the verse again. I don't know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says, I don't know which to choose. And the phrase, I do not know here, means literally, I, I can't verbalize it. I can't even say what my choice would be. So when contemplating the spiritual choices of seeing Christ in heaven, in person, or serving Christ on earth, Paul was stuck between a rock and a hard place. That's exactly what the term hard-pressed means here. It means hemmed in on both sides. Can't turn to the right or to the left. And I don't know which way to to choose. Pictures this this traveler being pressured from two sides, making, uh, you know, unable to move left or to the right, only forward. It's not actually that Paul had the choice because he really didn't in prison, right? It was certainly out of his hands. But what he's referring to here is his personal preference. If it were left up to him, Paul says, I don't know what I decide to do. I don't know what I'd choose. And there were two elements here that tore his soul apart. His personal preference to be with God and God's powerful priorities for his life. I think this is what Jesus struggled with in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this, let this cup pass, but not my will, Lord, yours be done. Let's look at Paul's personal preference in verse 23. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I have this desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Paul's personal preference or passionate desire, as the word indicates, was to depart this life and be with Christ. 
And the word depart here is an interesting word when you study it. It's the word used for breaking camp and folding up your tent. It's the same word that's used in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, by the way. Let me just uh, get that for you. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure has come. Same word. Picture folding up your tent at your campsite and moving on, because that's what the word means. You know what? Paul was a tent maker. Paul likened our departure from this life not as an end, but as breaking camp and moving on to another location. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians one more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice he uses that word tent. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 4. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Verse 8. Look at verse 8. We are of good courage, I say then, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. It seems pretty obvious to me from this text and others that Paul had this desire to be with Christ. Something else that it seems very clear to me from these texts, and some of you may disagree with me, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree. I don't see Paul advocating any kind of soul sleep, no purgatory, no holding tank theory, no limbo, no suspended animation, and he certainly didn't advocate for reincarnation. Nor did he preach the idea of permanent annihilation. On the contrary, I think Paul knew that there was a lot more than just the grave ahead of him when he died. He gave us clear impression that his departure from earth, this folding up of the tent, meant an immediate audience with Christ. Other scriptures indicate the same thing. Jesus told the thief on the cross quite definitively, today, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. When the Old Testament describes the death of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it states that they were gathered to their people. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says this about death, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. In the book of Acts, as Stephen was being martyred, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and exclaimed this, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. See, I think Paul was teaching here that death is like breaking camp. You fold up the tent and you move on from one life to the next. I like the way George MacDonald put it. He says, I came from God, and I'm going back to God, and I won't have any gaps of death in the middle of my life. This is moving from one to another. Scripture also teaches that there are only two camps to move on to. Okay? Some of you are not going to like this. If you have a personal and saving faith relationship in Christ, death is an immediate audience with him face to face, up close and personal. And in his presence, the scripture says, there is fullness of joy. However, death without Christ in your life means only one thing, an immediate and an irreversible hell. Now, you don't hear that much today. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13 and verse 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, talking about Jesus, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. 
And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, it says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is repeatedly described in the scripture that way. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Indicates intense pain to me. It's also described as the outer darkness in Matthew chapter 8. The unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And these are Jesus' words. Paul also describes hell as the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians. And you know what? I don't get any enjoyment out of saying these things. It pains me to speak these truths that the Scripture teaches about hell. I have to say, as Francis Chan once said, coming face to face with these passages on hell and asking these tough questions, this is a heart-wrenching process. And it forces me back to a sobering reality. This is not just about doctrine, folks. It's about destinies. It's about people's destinies. Will you meet death with Christ or without? Where will you be? Because according to that text in Luke chapter 13, the choice must be made before the door is shut. And you'll never know when that latch is going to click for good. Don't you want to be inside with Jesus where it's safe? Don't you? What in this world could possibly make you not want to be in the safety and in the comfort of Christ's love? What could compare? What on this earth could keep you from accepting his promise that that's where you'll be if you place your faith in him? Paul's personal preference was to be in the presence of Christ. He said, for that is very much better in verse 23 of Philippians 1. Very much better. This is a very unique occurrence in the Greek New Testament. It happens only here in this verse. You know what it's called? Just for informational purposes, FYI. It's called a triple comparative. A triple comparative. It literally says, much more excellent and to a greater extent. That's what Paul says. I think in more contemporary terms, in Maine, we'd say, it's wicked better. That's what he's, he's really emphasizing the fact. His desire to depart, whether, however, was not a selfish desire in the negative sense, many people today want to die. You know, people that don't even have Christ that want to die. And there are reasons maybe totally self-focused. People may be sick of life. They may be sick of other people. They could be sick of their jobs or sick of physical afflictions and emotional pain, which is understandable. They might be sick of being old and being burdensome to their families or society. They just might be sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired of being sick and tired. And to depart this life seems like it would be a great way out. But go back to those two camps. None of these reasons, by the way, characterized what Paul was talking about right here. And none of them characterized Paul's struggle. This is not Paul's living will. Paul's dilemma of whether to live or die was centered not in what would be best for Paul, but what would be more glorifying to God. He didn't know whether his death or his life would bring the most glory to God, and that's why he couldn't decide. But rest assured that what he wanted to decide for, what was going to be the best for God's will. If the Lord said to you, 
you got five minutes to decide between being in heaven or staying on earth. What would your response be? You think most people would want to stay here? And if so, what would be the reason? Well, we're just starting to build our dream home. I don't want to leave my kids. Or I'm getting married next week. I just started this great new job. You see, the real criteria for making the choice would be this. It would be to ask God, God, what would glorify you more? That's what I want to do. That's the answer to the question, according to Paul. That's all that mattered to Paul. If we live, Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8 says, for not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. His personal preference was to be with the Lord, yet Paul personal, his personal preference gives way to the Philippian spiritual need. Whenever we make spiritual choices, that's kind of the mindset that we should have. Our personal preference weighs heavy. However, there's something more important to consider, and that's God's powerful priorities. And that's the dilemma Paul faced. His personal preference or God's priorities. Verse 24. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Whenever we encounter tough spiritual choices, it is essential that our priorities are aligned with the right purpose. Right? Actually, those, that, that principle is true in everyday life. Not just spiritually, but practically. It was a 99-degree September day in San Antonio when a 10-month-old baby girl was accidentally locked in a parked car by her aunt. Okay? 99 degrees. Frantically, the mother and aunt ran around the car in absolute hysteria while a neighbor attempted to unlock the door with a coat hanger. In no time, the infant was turning purple and had foam on her mouth. It had become a life-or-death situation when Fred Ariola, a truck driver, a record driver, arrived on the scene. You know what he did? He instinctively grabbed a hammer and smashed the back window of the car to set that, that little baby free. Was he heralded a hero? In his own words, Fred related the incident, quote, the lady was mad at me because I broke the window. And I just thought, what's more important, the baby or the window? We don't say that, right? Not always. Priorities sometimes get way out of order for us. Paul, like Fred, Ariola, reminds us of what's ultimately important, not our own pleasure, but the needs of somebody else. One true mark of a spiritual man or woman is that his own desires and personal preferences are balanced by the spiritual needs of those around him. That was what characterized Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what prompted Stephen to risk martyrdom for his faith. That's what instigated Paul to write in Philippians chapter 2, which we're going to look at in another couple of weeks, Verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves or than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This is, this is Paul's life, and he's saying it should be ours as a Christian. And when we place our confidence in Christ, we will be inevitably encountering many such spiritual choices. I think we encounter them more often than we think we do. And hopefully, like Paul, we'll start to realize that ultimately and finally, that confidence in Christ exemplifies selfless concern. Verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in, in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. The more, more Paul thought about it, the more he realized that to remain on earth would bring the most glory to God. And that's why he became convinced, it says here, or persuaded 
that he would remain or stay on. My friends, here's something that you can bank on and be confident in. The servant of Christ is invincible until his work for God is done. The servant of Christ is invincible until his work for God is done. You can depend on that. Of course, we don't know when that is, but rest assured, as long as God wants you here, you will remain here. As one man wrote, there are no incomplete lives and there are no premature removals. Paul sensed that his work wasn't done with the Philippians. And even though he preferred to depart this world and to be with Christ, he was ready to stay on, to stand by, and to step out with the Philippian church for two reasons. Number one, his concern was for their spiritual progress. That's what it says here. I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Look at his main concerns here. Their pioneering advance, their progress of the gospel and the joy of their faith. That's what he was interested in. And we all need joy in our faith, don't we? That word comes from the same word which we get the word charismatic from. Somebody once asked me, I've, I've had this question a number of times. They say, well, so are you charismatic? You know what they mean, right? All Christians are charismatic. Christians are to be charismatic in the sense of rejoicing and on fire for God. Amen? There's no such thing as a static faith. Faith is alive. Amen? It's dynamic. It moves forward. Matthew Henry wrote, the more faith, the more joy, and the more faith and joy, the more we are furthered in our Christian course. Amen? Last week, I shared this quote with you. Life is what we are alive to. Are you alive, spiritually alive? Are you charismatic? Spurgeon said, God will not use dead tools to perform living miracles. Bishop Henley said that he would rather tone down a fanatic than to try to resurrect a corpse. <laughs> Which are you today? Which are you? Are you as concerned for this church's spiritual progress and joy as Paul was for the Philippians? You should be praying for that. Because Paul's concern was for their spiritual progress, but it, his concern also had a spiritual purpose. What's the purpose? That their rejoicing and their proud confidence may overflow in Christ. Now, unfortunately, the New American Standard Bible is a little misleading here. It says, your, your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. But, but literally, it almost seems to indicate here that, that their proud confidence was supposed to be put in Paul. But that's not what he's saying here. The New Living Translation kind of captures the essence of the meaning a little bit better. And when I come to you, Paul says, again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of, because of what he is doing through me. That's the essence of what Paul's trying to say. The Philippians' confidence would not be centered in Paul, but in Christ's work through Paul. Amen? The basis for every believer's confidence cannot be in ourselves. We can't be gathering people to ourselves. It's to Christ. We can't even place our confidence in what our service is worth to God. We're all expendable, but it's Christ. Our confidence must always be in Christ. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 26 says this, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and, in, and his children will have refuge. Where are you placing your confidence? Remember that the strength of your commitment is determined by the center of your confidence. I said that at the beginning. Where's your confidence? This is no better exemplified than through the following true story, which I'll close with. One commentator that I, that, that I uh, read this week made a very good point. He said, it's been often observed that death is an embarrassment to modern Western culture. Prior to the first half of the 20th century, when extended families often lived near each other and even in the same house with each other, it was not uncommon for children to observe death firsthand and to learn to cope with it from older family members around them. 
It used to happen all the time. And it was a good thing, I believe. Today, however, people die in hospitals more frequently than they do in their homes. Bodies are quickly removed from the hospital to the morgue, and the embalmer's art rapidly restores the body of the deceased to a lifelike appearance. Death is the worst possible event for those who believe that they have an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And our way of coping with it seems to be to deny its existence. Paul, however, faced death with the same firm resolve that marked his approach to life. For both death and life to him meant service to Christ. And service to Christ was his primary goal. Perhaps more than at any other time in history, the church today needs to adopt that perspective on life and death. With most in the world around us refusing to talk about the subject out of stark terror, and with the philosophers who do speak of it often claiming that the notion of life after death is only wishful thinking, it is tempting for the believer to live as if there were nothing beyond the grave. This can only cause us to clutch our material possessions more tightly for the security that they can give us, keeping us from risking our lives in the service of God. Many Iranian believers, on the other hand, have learned Paul's perspective on death. And they, like him, provide an example for us. Years ago, Mehdi Dibaj, for example, was imprisoned by the government of Iran in 1984 on charges of apostasy. Since he had converted from Islam to Christianity, and the penalty for this crime, according to the Islamic law that ruled Iran, was death. Mehdi languished in prison for 10 years before his case came to trial. And when it did, his written statement of defense before that court was a simple and straightforward reaffirmation of his commitment to Jesus Christ. And you can read it online, and believe me, it's incredible. The last few lines of that defense contain this remarkable paragraph. Let me read it to you. Quote, Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel. And I've committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord, unquote. This is not back in the days of the early church fathers. This is modern day. December 12, 1993, the court before whom this defense was made sentenced Mehdi to execution. And then under intense pressure from people in the West who knew of the case, including the U.S. State Department, the Iranian government arranged his release in January of 1994. However, seven months later, he was found dead in a park under suspicious circumstances in the third Christian murdered in Iran after his release from prison. Some Christian groups suspected the complicity of the Iranian government you see, the test of faith that Paul experienced nearly two millennia ago is repeated in the modern church still, and we know that it's happening now. It remains a reality for the believers who live under the anti-Christian totalitarian regimes. If we are to be as faithful in our commitment to the gospel and to the church as Paul expected the Philippians to be, we need to be aware of the needs of our suffering brothers and sisters and pray that God will supply them with an unusual abundance of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and learn from their single-minded devotion to the gospel. In life and in death, how we should live in the service of the gospel in our own time and place because it may come to us. But we should be living that way now, shouldn't we? When it's easy to be a Christian in our country, so to speak. Easy.
I just want to share one more thing with you that came across my desk this week. Email from somebody that comes to church here. They received this email from someone that they know. And um, it's kind of like a third remove type of a thing. They know some missionaries that are in the Middle East. And they received an email from them. And this is what it says. Dear, dear all, I have received these two emails from our missionary friends, one yesterday and one this morning. I wanted to pass it on so that as many people as possible can pray specifically for our brothers and sisters. Much love and blessings. And I need to tell you right now, I need to warn you right now, if you're a little bit, don't like to hear negative things, you might want to leave or take your child out. But this is reality. She says, this is so sad. A friend just got a text message from her brother asking her to shower him and his parish in prayer. He is part of a mission, and ISIS has taken over the town they are in today. And he said, ISIS is systematically going house to house to all the Christians and asking the children to denounce Jesus. Not the parents, the children. He said, so far, not one child has denied. And so far, all have been consequently killed. But not the parents. The UN has withdrawn and the missionaries are on their own. They are determined to stick it out for the sake of the families, even if it means their own deaths. He's very afraid and has no idea how to even begin ministering to these families who have seen their children martyred. Yet he says he knows God has called him for some reason to be his voice and hands at this place and at this time. Even so, he is begging prayers for his courage to live out his vocation in such dire circumstances and like the children accept martyrdom if he is called to do so. She asked me to ask everyone we know to please pray for them. These brave parents instilled such a fervent faith in their children that they chose martyrdom. Please surround them in their loss with your prayers for hope and perseverance. Perseverance.